Welcome to this week's episode of the Comeback Girl podcast. My guest this week is Jambi McGrath. She's a Kenyan-born stand-up comedian based in the UK now. She's done comedy all over the country and she has just released her TV comedy special. She's written a memoir and is currently working on her second book. She's a blogger and podcaster with hilarious contributions to Glam, Africa and HuffPost. She was born into a Kenyan tribe and her homeland was decimated with European colonisation. When she was 12, her father beat her so hard he thought he'd killed her. She told me her story of moving to the UK to study and she fought hard at a tribunal once she'd had her first baby and she was treated very poorly coming back to work. She left full-time employment and decided to retrain as a National Childbirth Trust counsellor. But she captivated nervous parents-to-be so powerfully that one suggested she try stand-up. So cue the current day, Jambi has written and performed five Edinburgh Fringe Festival shows. This year's is called African in New York, Almost Famous. She's funny and eloquent and just a great advocate for women being utterly true to who they are. She tells the story of how crucial it's been to her career as a comedian to just have her own message that's uniquely hers. Through this, she challenges our preconceptions of what it's like to live in Africa. I hope you enjoy her sometimes harrowing but powerful and ultimately uplifting story. My tribe, were farmers living in the central province of Kenya. Beautiful tropical plants, mm. deep red soils. So when the first British guy came to Kenya, he said that was easily the most beautiful and the most fertile place on earth. And therefore, that was our downfall, mm. because he said this is where the British are going to live. They shifted like, the whole of my tribe, and we were put in these native reserves. People became very desperate. Girls started uh, selling their bodies so that they could buy food. Uh, men started selling their bodies so they could buy food. and. And this, all of this happened in, in, within living memory. So it's, it's not like as though it happened in the 1700s. So they uh, basically formed a London Freedom Army, which was branded a terrorist organization. My whole tribe were now moved from those native reserves to concentration camps. And that's where my parents grew up. The reason I started writing this memoir was because when I was about 13 years old, my dad beat me up and left me thinking I was dead. I ran away. And so when he died in 2014, all of that came back. So a lot of children of that generation are very traumatized by their parents' trauma, which is not spoken about. So when, when my dad died, I, I, I just like found all this anger. And then I thought, I have to put it onto paper. So I started speaking to my mom. And she said, yeah, I've told you many times we were in this place. And I said, you didn't tell me it's a concentration camp. I didn't know, Mum. It was so harrowing. When I was doing the research for the first year, I, I cried every single day, realising how this trauma has affected us. Many men in Kenya are still suffering from this because many men were castrated. And uh, 
their wives were left with um, rape children. Uh, the women are the ones who are picking up the pieces. And these women are, are doing amazing things. Like, the country is properly supported by women. Despite what my mother went through, despite what my grandmother went through, and especially my grandmother, but they still were strong women. So strong that I didn't know how traumatized they were. And then they stopped this in 1960. But they destroyed the camps before they left, and they hid a lot of the documents and all of this, obviously, because that was the dirty little secret. I'd grown up seeing strong women around me, mm. and these women had nothing. We have everything. So, and that, with that mentality, I just think, my grandmother made things happen. How come I can't? You know, I've got the education, I've got the ability. So that for me, it's never, I can't do it. If I can't do it, it's because I don't like it. And that's why I say, oh, I can't do it. So what is the situation now yeah. with yeah. men and women yeah. who have survived yeah. that experience? How are they now living? Uh, many of them are desperately poor. Although some of them, they did well because they just had to move on. A lot of those men, they sued the British government, especially the men that were castrated, and they paid them £3,000 each. But these are people who, generations... Yeah. Have practiced shifting cultivation. Yeah, they've been told to become nomads. They yeah. don't have a clue how to do that. Yeah. You don't know. Then they get shoved in a camp yeah. where they're learning absolutely no skills. Yeah. They're so, becoming more and yeah. more desperate. And delinquency then becomes outlawed. Vagrancy was outlawed. But what are, what are the options? What are the self-destruction is what happens in situations of when you're trying to take away something from someone. You make their lives so miserable that many of them would just take their lives out of sheer uh, misery. So you put them in a very tight containment. If I may yeah. ask, have you, through doing the memoir yeah. and all of your research, yeah. come any closer to understanding the motivations for what your father did? Yeah. It's tragedy after tragedy. I, I mean, I've done a show about it. When I found his journey, I broke down. and. I don't have the bitterness that I, I had. I just felt so sad and so sorry for him. And this is a thing. People say, you need to move away from colonialism. And we can't because we are also still traumatized. Like in Kenya, people are traumatized and they don't even know it. I didn't know I was traumatized. So we, I, I had all of this from the anger I felt for my dad. My dad himself was traumatized. My mother was traumatized with the things that they witnessed. They never had any counseling, they never had anything. And so when Gordon Brown came to Kenya, he said, Britain is fed up of apologizing. When you write from Africa, they've always said, oh, like Africans always write about colonialism. What else are we gonna write about? This mm. is what we write about. So my memoir was basically about my journey of understanding. And now I understand why the Kenyan men are in such a crisis, because it takes a long time for people to come out of it. You know, people are still affected. Like if you look in America, people are still affected by slavery, although it ended such a long time mm -hmm. ago. Mm -hmm. In Kenya, we got our independence in 1963. A lot of the bodies that were killed, they're still in trenches where they were buried. And yet we think about the problems in, in Kenya being malaria, <laughs> but actually what's actually going in is a yeah. systemic yeah. issue of emasculation of men, Ooh. everybody being disempowered, everybody being their homeland being threatened. Yeah, and they, they never got the, the land back. So there's still a lot of people who were dispossessed and never got anything from independence. And is this the, the problem you're seeing in South Africa? Whereas Robert Mugabe, whatever mm. people might think about him, he actually took the land back from the white owners 
who oh, I mean, like like the, the I don't want to mention names because these people are very very powerful in Kenya. They've got someone. One person has like something like twenty seven thousand acres. And there's still a lot of those colonialists living in Kenya. Twenty seven thousand acres, and the land was never paid for. There's so many people who are destitute, and they're like, "Oh God, we don't understand this poverty in Africa. We're just gonna send them aid and maybe dig them another well." And then you don't see the ridiculousness of the whole thing. The literature in Africa is still very much controlled. It's still as colonial as it was. So people don't know what it is that they're suffering from. You know, it's like you know, if you're exposed to a toxic gas and you're all suffering, but you don't know what you're suffering yeah. from. And I guess many people wouldn't have the, for want of a better word, benefit that you've had of actually being able to research, yeah. separate yourself yeah. from it, go back into yeah. it and examine yeah. where the trauma came from. Yeah. People are in it. They can take no steps towards yeah. forgiveness. Recovery or, or anything. Because they, they don't understand what it is that yeah. they're having to process. Yeah. So he was telling me, the journalist, about the problem with abuse of alcohol, which is something that is endemic. Like the natives of places like... I've never been to Australia, so I don't mm. know. It, uh, it is exactly the, the same. same. Yeah, because it is a tried and tested means. Mm -hmm. Probably what you're seeing in Palestine as well. Mm -hmm. You push so many people together, together until they self-destruct. Mm -hmm. We're still suffering from that. It takes a long time to, to come out of it. There was a lot of women who were out protesting that there's no men to get them pregnant. I don't know if you saw this story. No, I didn't. Yeah, because all the men are busy, very busy drinking. This is, this is how disempowered the men became, that they can't... I know. It's not their fault. I know. But the women don't understand what they're suffering from. Neither do the men. Speak to your grandparents. Find out what happened to them. And then you'll find the journey of recovery, you know? I had no idea that that was the level of trauma yeah. that is still being experienced. Yeah. I just yeah. can't imagine ever coming back yeah. from something like that. It makes what we go through when we talk yeah. about men not stepping up to the game yeah, and yeah, not yeah. sharing responsibility yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah. all of that stuff yeah. it isn't it's not a patch yeah. on this yeah. experience yeah yeah and all of this is within recent memory we think of it as some sort of paradise that we can perhaps get to for two weeks a year this is what's going on for the people who live there and have tended to that land and yeah. it's it's their home yeah you know, there's, there's so many landmines from all the military exercises and all of this. Like when I was in Kenya at Christmas, 10 children saw a hand grenade and they were playing with it. It, it exploded and killed 10 children. I mean, it's, it's still, we got our independence so long ago, but there's still so many problems there. If you were one of these wealthy landowners, what would you do to change the situation? I would first of all bring back education and let them know who they are again. Mm -hmm. This is how they Yeah. Identity. These are your clothes. This yeah. is how we made the clothes. Yeah, we made the leather. finest, most beautiful leather. That's what they wore. All of these beautiful things. So bring that back. Mm -hmm. Bring back the songs because we, we used to sing. Bring back the dancing. We are suffering from lack of identity. And then of course, you know, get rid of all this colonial education because when you believe that you're lesser of a person, although it's not as pronounced as it is like black British people, where you're always put down because you know, you're black or whatever, and in America. So in Kenya, I suppose it's slightly different. You know, like you see when there are these elections, they say, no, we've got to have a white person being in charge of, <laughs> of elections. 
because they've got my integrity. That would make complete sense, wouldn't it? Yeah, they've got my integrity. It's like, yeah, of course. Because we're chasing what the West has been chasing, uh, consumerism and capitalism, where you have to have three cars or five cars or ten cars. So we want, 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 want. And Kenya is, the people are going to that place, want, 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 and you're never satisfied. So contentment rather than aspiration. Yeah. Sharing culture, sharing identity, mm. sharing a community. Yeah, the community was everything. Because mm. he, there, there was hardly any police. Well, I suppose the, the warriors acted as the police. But the moral code, the moral code was so strict that mm. there was no molestation. Uh, the liberalisation of sex was just mm. incredible. Because people think, like when the Europeans came to Kenya, they said the African women are sexually pure. It's like, mm. how do you know? Mm. Mm. Because there was a lot of sexual liberalization. Uh, a man could marry 10 wives, and any one of those wives, if they wanted to sleep with another man, all they had to do was tell the husband, I, I desire so-and-so, one of your friends. <laughs> could you live in that setup where the sharing economy? It made sense. Mm -hmm. Now it doesn't make sense, mm -hmm. but at the time it made sense. Mm -hmm. You would have, like they called them, a partner. So, so you're, you're married and then mm -hmm. you'd have a partner. So that she would have her house there, you'd have your house here. We would do the sharing of childcare. So, so if mm -hmm. I became a tradeswoman, mm -hmm. like um, my sister wife could Looks look after, after my, my children, children and cooks for them and does everything. Yeah. So yeah. childcare was never an issue. Mm -hmm. So the children were brought up by, they used to call them second mother or third mother. So they have this solid structure of people watching their discipline, watching their behavior and everything. So the dad was in the middle, but then you had like all these, um, all these mothers who looked after you. Hence the phrase, it takes a village to raise, raise a, child. a child. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so these women had liberation. Like this one woman, she actually physically went and married another woman, which was not uncommon, mm -hmm. and brought her into the family. It's, it's an incredible system. It worked. Would I want another woman living here with me and my husband? No. You know, it's different times. And teenagers too. There was no immorality because once the teenagers went through the rituals which marked your adulthood, the girls had to wear a special outfit, so there would never be a sexual penetration. Mm -hmm. But they would uh, do all sorts of foreplay with the boys, and it was okay, widely accepted. And then so there was no sexual assault, but in any case, it was the girls that chose the boy. And if a girl said she was sexual... Sounds to me like there's no objectification in that. No. A girl had to be a virgin, but whichever way they found their sexual pleasure, they would. Their sexual needs were met. They didn't want people straying. They didn't want all of that. But who are we to judge that through our Western goggles? Uh, you know, this is what worked for generations yeah. and generations and generations until we came and, and we really did rape and pillage, didn't we? And it thought did. we had a better way. Yeah. The year that the Europeans arrived was the year that people of my tribe had venereal diseases. So, so sorry for <laughs> So how did you end up in the UK? I came to study like most people. And when you're young and you go to a different country, the chances of you going back, mm. because I met my husband and, um, yeah. So what did you study? IT. IT. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm struggling to see... <laughs> IT and me. Yeah, I wouldn't have picked it for you. Yeah. But but we, you know, journeys are 
not as linear as, as we think. That's what, the more people I interview, the more I say. Um, and I'll, and then you then you pivot to something else. Yeah. So what was the the thing that you pivoted to? I was a classic example because I worked for an American software house, and the moment I got pregnant, everything changes. Mm. And then when I went back, uh, my performance apparently slacked. I was uh, demoted. Uh, they they actually had you requested to downscale your job? No. I, I wanted to work part-time because, first mm-hmm. of all, they gave me 12 weeks maternity leave. It was not enough. So I went to see the HR mm-hmm. and I said, please, can I have longer? And they said, the only thing we can do for you is if you take all your parental leave on top of that. They said, well, technically speaking, we're not allowed to do this, but we're going to do it. So in the end, close to seven months, and I took on holiday and stuff like that. But then I also said, I, I want to work part-time. I want to work three days a week because I used to have to leave the house at seven and then get home at seven. And if you have a baby, it's so hard. And I wanted to see my baby. Yeah. And she said to me, let me give you one piece of advice. There is two types of women in the workplace. The ones that make it are the ones who pretend they don't have children. I can't believe she said that out loud. Yeah. How do you pretend you don't have a baby? In all fairness, even if you wanted to. But you, you got your three days. The, you know what? You force a company to give you three days. You force them. But the three days I was at work was absolutely misery. Yeah. You know, that's how they, they do these things. You know, Passive aggressive and, you yeah. know, this and all of that. And you become more and more miserable. Yeah. And then you're missing out. and you're Sidelined. Just side sidelined and all of this. The team I was in, everybody got a bonus but me because my performance had gone down. And I got to a point of thinking, I can't be treated like this anymore, so I took them to the tribunal. And coincidentally, my date of the tribunal was four days after I gave birth to my second daughter. The baby was not permitted in the room even if the baby was sleeping. And so I was just by myself. And a team of lawyers, all of them in their suits, and the barrister and... He would come to me every morning and then he would offer me pittance. And with a hindsight, I should have just taken it and gone. But I didn't. I was so single-minded. I was yeah. like, I don't care about the money. I've Yeah, far. I've come this far. I did the best that I could. Given, I'd just given birth. I was just about to say, the competing emotions, hormones all over the place, that, yeah. that intense love, that the last thing you want to do is be away from that little I know. person. I know. You're and they feeding, did it. Yeah. But then you've got this white-hot anger. Yeah, 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 yeah. My husband could see what he was doing to me. And he said, you know what? You will never, you'll never be happy there. Yeah. And he said, clearly, you just want to be home and look after the girls. Why don't you then do that? And you know, sometimes if something is said to you, you're like, oh, I can't, I can't actually do that. Can I? Sometimes I we need other people to give out, yeah. give us the permission. Yeah, it's a big thing for you. Why? Don't you just like take time, then you don't have to worry about maternity leave or mm. when you go mm. back and then at some point you're going to think about what you want to do. And I thought, oh my God, that's a weight off my shoulders. Mm. I could breastfeed my girl, yeah. I could go to the park without having to worry about all of this. Mm-hmm. So he gave me the permission. I knew I never wanted to go back to that work environment again. And then in the meantime, I, I decided to retrain and do the childbirth classes. And the childbirth with classes the with the NCT, yeah. Those childbirth classes are what gave me the confidence to 
stand in front of people and talk. The beginning of the journey. And I'd be like, what, what, why would all these people, most of them professionals, want to listen to anything I have to say? Mm-hmm. And then when I had their information to give them, and the people were engaged, they say, they, we love your style of teaching. So I was really beginning to enjoy myself. So can I just check, this is the setup, and I've been, I am no poster yeah. child for NCT, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. I just did not go through their process oh, for really? the ideal birth. No. Yeah. But um, I did go to classes. Oh, right. And so it was myself and my husband, another few couples. We'd sit in someone's lovely living room, have a cup of tea, and she would say, this is what is going to happen to you. <laughs> and this is how to cope with it. And so we did a series of nights. And to be honest with you, what I really got out of that was the community of yeah. other mothers-to-be yeah. who were all as nervous as I was. Then we had these beautiful bundles at, all at about the same time. And we had instant instant yeah. group mm. to share all of the, what is going yeah. on? So, so are they the groups that you yeah. facilitated and trained? Yeah. Program? yeah, yeah. They were free classes. The men would come with their phones and think, I'm just going to sit there. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I want you to want to be in my class. I'm going to entertain you. So one guy came to me, he said... Uh, why don't you do stand-up? I think you'll be good at it. I came home and I said, oh my God, this guy in my class, he said, why don't I do stand-up? And my husband said, do it, do it. So he said, why don't you look at the comedy clubs? So we only went to the biggest comedy club at the time. And during the interval, I spoke to the owner and I said, if I want to be a comedian, how do I go about it? He said, you ring me tomorrow and I'm going to give you a spot. So I rang him. And he said, the 1st of December, you've got a date. But the thing is, like, when, when I make people laugh, because they've come to pregnancy classes, mm. if we already have one topic that we can make yeah. fun of and stuff yeah. like that. So I thought, God, what am I going to talk about? I, I thought, oh, I'm just going to watch female comedians. So I would, I would Google female comedians, and most of them are American. And then they would do all these filthy sets. And I was like, mm. when you're a comedian, this is what you're expected to talk about. That's what I thought to myself. Mm-hmm. So I wrote a set, and the set was just awful, awful. I went to, before I went on stage, one of the comedians said, I don't want to say this, and I don't want to sound bad, but uh, female comedians shouldn't really dress like that. Uh, you don't want people to be thinking about anything else other than what you're saying. because oh, it's distracting. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I so think. if you've got like a little dress yeah. and whatever. Yeah. I don't know what they're expecting, a striptease or something. I don't know. <laughs> After I came off the stage, the owner of the club said to me, move away from that dirty material, it doesn't suit you. He said, write what you know. And that was the best piece of advice anybody could have given me. Uh, so like if you see my reviews, my, my reviews are, you know, different and, you know, but that's who I am. You flip out preconceptions of what it means to be a black African woman mm. on their head mm-hmm. and you in a way that you know we're not expecting and it kind of it kind of makes you think that's really <laughs> funny and <laughs> she can get away yeah. with it as well yeah, yeah. and it's such a unique brand yeah. of yeah. humor and isn't it interesting that it came from mm-hmm. someone saying to you mm-hmm. say what you know say yeah. who you are yeah otherwise mm-hmm. i would still have been trying to to do to do that material yeah. by black uh, americans and they're doing what they know yeah. but i i don't know that because that's that's not who i am and so that, that was a great piece of advice and um 
no, so I, I kind of know what to focus on. And I read your hilarious tongue-in-cheek article. Oh, I've I... given us nothing. That oh, yeah. It's hilarious. I must oh, yeah. put it in the For show half notes, post. actually. Half yeah. post, that's yeah. it. Absolutely brilliant. If we're delivering our own individual message, we're not competing against anyone because no. there's, there's no one who's like us. Yeah. So since that time, you've been gigging? Yes. Writing? Writing. What else have you been doing? So, I have been, since I came back from Edinburgh last year, I, I came You've straight back. You've how many Edinburghs? Um, five. What's Edinburgh five. like? Uh, crazy, hard, beautiful, it's everything. Mm. You see everything in Edinburgh. Do the girls come with you? I've always taken them with me. I need to see them and uh, yeah. they yeah, protest. It's a long time. Yeah, they protest. They're like, no. It's like, you will think back and think, oh, my mother made us go to Edinburgh every year and you, you know, you're going to look back. And I love that. I love that, that finally I've got a platform to be able to say all these things, the things that my, my grandmother never had a platform to say. I Do you feel a responsibility? No, I don't feel a responsibility. I just, the thing about comedians is that we love talking about ourselves. If you don't have a message, then nobody will come and listen to you. But if you've got a message, people will come and listen to you. And I have something to tell. And I love t- telling my stories. And so I don't feel the responsibility. I don't feel it's my job to actually do this. But I just like to tell my stories. So a, a good comedian will have laser-sharp powers of observation. And so I'd love to know, from your experience at NCT and all of the people that you know just through the course of life, Looking at women, what do you see? What's what's the fodder we give you? What traps do you see us falling into when we're trying to manage it all yeah. that we could perhaps avoid a little bit more easily than we think we can? That's a, a difficult one because everybody has their own trap. <laughs> uh, but I think that the biggest trap for many women is they they are afraid to give it a go. There are opportunities. If you look for these opportunities, they may not be that evident. Because mm-hmm. if you told me when then, when I was a computer programmer, that I would be an author, I would be a comedian, I, I would have said, this is witchcraft, what you're trying mm-hmm. to, to tell me. Mm-hmm. Because I could not have foreseen which way my future was going to go. Mm-hmm. And I always hold J.K. Rowling in such high esteem, not as a brilliant author, but uh, the icon of the struggle of a woman a single mother yeah. without time to write because like I, I write and I know how long it takes mm. when, when my children are at school I have all day in the stillness of all of this to think and be creative but she had a toddler and a baby and she had to do it in a cafe and all of this stuff so to have self-belief and just know that there are opportunities out there if you look hard enough yeah you just kind of turned over the stones didn't you yeah yeah and it's led you to where you are yeah it became very evident to me my shortcomings of being so a woman a black woman and not even just a black woman an african woman because all of those are tears of the hierarchy in the entertainment industry and just thinking oh my god nothing's gonna come easy for me so every year i have written a brand new show and in between, I've written a 90,000-word memoir. I've uh, almost finished my, my other book that I'm writing, and I'm already drafting my uh, fiction book. So my brand new show, which I'm taking to the Edinburgh Festival, which I'm still trying to sort of get into shape and whatever, is called 
African in New York, almost famous. <laughs> and what I want to do with this show is I want to bring it back for one and one night only, I'm going to bring it back home to Ealing because Please do. Ealing is my home and it's going to be at the Questus Theatre. Yeah. And uh, we're going to be filming that one and hopefully if Netflix, they will commission it. Uh, so that is on the 12th of October, the Questus Theatre. When you were talking about colonisation mm. and, and what that's done, mm. thinking about the fact that we have the luxury of choice here in a way that your heritage hasn't experienced, or not, not in recent times anyway. And you were saying the women get on with it just because they have to. Yeah. Do you think it is any easier because they don't have that analysis paralysis that we get into where we we have too much choice too many options and I see this with uh, especially in childbirth like a woman in Kenya giving birth and I say so what are you gonna do and they're like what do you mean what am I gonna do I'm just gonna go and give birth so the very mindset is very very different having too much choice I don't know you know that but that's all you everybody knows here you know you've always had the choice sometimes it's good to have a choice rather than have no choice mm. uh, on the other side is that it just makes people more, very pragmatic you know like when they do things like comic relief mm. it's mind-blowing that they do the stuff like that yeah it really 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 is uh, but when they do something like that, if you see many Africans, they just like, they're very, they get very upset. <laughs> they show Africans as helpless recipients of aid. They don't show you the woman that's got her pot on the side of the road. So she's cooking so that she can sell the food she's cooking in her pot. And they're like, oh my God, do you feel really sad living here? And she's like, I've got a life. I go, I work, I pay I'm for the rent victim, here. Actually. I'm not a victim. And why would I feel sad about this? I've got a house. All these people have their own things going. You know, it's, it's yeah. not like as if we just sit there by the side of the roads, just, you know, help yeah. us, help. It's not We like have that. identity, we have purpose, we've defined them for ourselves. Well, this is it. Moving from the gig where you wore red shoes yeah. and you weren't using material that worked for you to mm. today mm. where you have a television audience or you will um, what what have you learnt along that journey um, just um, <laughs> just to talk about what you know what mm-hmm. is true to you mm-hmm. and that, that that difference gives you the edge basically uh, although I was so frustrated to see like all the young white boys getting all the nice gigs and all of that stuff if there's 3,000 of them talking of the same thing and I'm one of me talking about something different. Sometimes people are like, oh God, let's hear what she's mm. got to say. So, hmm. There are people who will hate me and there are people who will love what I do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Clearly, you have a phenomenal work ethic. How important has that been for you? I enjoy it and I want now, I've reached a point of thinking, uh, if I died today, what would my legacy be? And that's, that's kind of what I am so driven, just thinking that. I ask myself, what would my children be proud of when they think of me? That's, that's what, what makes me want to do it. And I think, mm. God, I can't believe I wasted my time in my 20s. Mm. It's like, if I hadn't wasted you my time... You wasted any time at all. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. 
Mm. I really do enjoy it. I want to take a cracking show to the Edinburgh Festival. I, I want my book to be read by everybody. It's easy when you enjoy something. So the takeaways that I've got from talking to you mm. are how important it is to celebrate your difference. Yeah. Having a work ethic is healthy and necessary as long as you're channeling that energy in the right way and you're doing what you enjoy. Yeah. And not selling your soul in something just for the, yeah. the sake of it. Yeah. You know, I always ask myself, what will my regrets be? Mm. I don't want to have my children say my mother neglected us or my mother did this. Mm. Can you imagine if on my deathbed I'll have thought I worked for 50 years in a job I hated. Yeah. I love what you say about how we can take so much from a tribal way of life yeah. in sharing wisdom, yeah. um, the community, yeah. you know, in the same way that a village raised a baby. Yeah. It's, it's the, the support and we, are, we cannot operate yeah. in a siloed fashion yeah. that we, we try to in yeah. the West. Yeah. Although like, we look like really primitive and stupid, a man having eight wives or five wives or whatever, it's not because these women were each other's pillars. Mm. They supported one another. Imagine mm. having all these women, eh, because postnatal depression is maybe caused by demand overload, mm. isolation, and all of this. Yeah. So you had all these co-wives who would cook for you when you're a new mother, who would help with the children uh, when you were real. They would co-wife. do all. I need a co-wife. Yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, and the thing is also, above all, basically, you, you don't have to fake a headache if you... <laughs> if you're like, delegate, delegate, delegate. The other thing that is a really big takeaway for me from this is how important it is for us to be constantly in touch with our own identity and being really rock solid in that. Yeah, because, be true to yourself. Yeah. Mm. I wish you all the best with this TV. Thank you so there. much. Come on, Netflix. I know. See, that that would be the ultimate for me. Yeah. And uh, I, I want other women who are in that position, who are, they've just got a baby, they're thinking, God, how am I going to cope with the childcare and all of this stuff? What am I going to do? Be true to yourself and do not be afraid to fail because this is the other thing. People are so afraid to fail. And you will see many like business people are not afraid to fail. And the successful enterprise that we see them yeah. having now yeah. is not the first thing they no. did. No, 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 no. Actually, no. I remember you making that point. Yeah. We were talking about, um, what's his name? Terrell and Sugar. Sugar. Yeah. I mean, he's failed loads. Don't, care, don't worry what other people say. Because when I said to like my peers, I'm going to do stand-up comedy, one of them spat out her coffee. Come on, have faith me. And Ignore the naysayers. Yeah, but the thing is, if you believe in yourself, other yeah. people will believe in you. Uh, and when I look back at the women in my family, like my mother, my grandmother, mm. they had very little, but they mm. may do. And I can't believe that actually I am from that product of those people. I am who I am because of those women. You've been honouring yeah. us, what they yeah. did to get you here, yeah. and then you built on that. This is it. Thank you for um, giving me the platform.